Good morning. Um, Our text for this morning is going to be Psalm 40. While you turn there, I just want to briefly kind of say why I chose to preach on this text. Um, And it's actually not for the reason that I think I'm actually what the message actually is going to be. Um, I was really drawn to the first three verses of the psalm as I was reading through it a couple months ago um, in my devotional time. Um, And that's kind of what I wanted the focus of the message to be. Um, And it still is. It still is a very powerful part of the message, and um, we'll go back to it many times. But as I read the rest of the psalm as I was studying it and was reading commentators who um, also studied this psalm and their notes on it, I realized there is a lot more to it than I had initially thought. And that's one of the reasons why I love doing this is because it gets me in the scripture. It makes me study it and I see so many more beautiful things than I saw before. And each time I read another passage of scripture, I, I just see more of God's word coming out and his truth prevailing through his scripture. So there's a lot more context to this passage as I actually studied the second half of the, of the psalm as well. That really gives even more power to the beginning of it. So if you want to, um, I'm going to throw up just the the title slide um, while we read the psalm, and I'll read it for us, and then we'll kind of walk through the passage and and see see what it's teaching us. Psalm 40, for the directive music of David, a psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For my troubles without, for troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. 
May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. So this is a psalm of David. And so this is where to assume that, that David is, is writing, singing this psalm. But it was sung generally by congregations of Jewish worshipers. So a couple observations I'll walk through before we kind of get to the main teaching points. Um, in the first half of this psalm, David is recounting the work that God has previously done in his life. He remembers both what God did for him and his response to that work of God. First, we see that David is patiently waiting. He's patiently waiting for God when the story begins. It's in verse 1. His posture in this time of desperation is not one of frantically grasping for control of the situation, but a posture of patience and trust. He is not responding to his trouble by putting his head down, pumping his fists, and trudging through the mud, but by lifting his head up and crying out. Well, notice that this is the only thing that David does in this sequence of verses 1 through 3. The only action attributed to the mighty King David is that he waited patiently and cried. From there, God turns to David and hears his cry. God responds to his patient and needy posture and takes over from there. God reaches down into the slimy pit, the thick mud, and lifts David out. Have you ever been in a situation like this? I know that I have, many times. There are those times when it feels like no matter what step you take, no matter how hard you try to walk through the swamp, your feet just sink deeper and deeper into the mud. It engulfs you, it traps you. You sink deeper and deeper and you worry how much longer you can keep your head above the ground. My instinct tells me to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I try. But what do I do when my bootstraps are three feet deep in thick, dark, sinking mud? When David was here, he waited and cried out. And then the strong yet gentle hand of God reached down into the mud and lifted him out, freeing him from his impending suffocation. But not only does God lift him out of the mud, but he sets his feet upon a rock, a firm foundation. Where before David's steps just caused him to sink deeper and deeper, his steps upon the rock are now secure and purposeful. David then sings out praise to God for his newfound freedom and security, but notice still that it's still the work of God. God put a new song in David's mouth. He replaced the cries and moans of slow suffering and sinking death with a beautiful song of praise and worship to God. And this is not a quiet, solemn song. Rather, it's a loud and a powerful song, loud enough and powerful enough that other causes many other people to see and fear the Lord. It's in verse 3. It's not a song that's kept to himself. God turned... He heard, he lifted, he set, and he put a new song in David's mouth so that others would also put their trust in him. In recounting God's work in his life, David now moves on in verse 4 to expressing how blessed the man is who puts his trust in God 
And conversely, how not blessed is the man who puts his trust in something else. There are only two places to look, the text says, to the Lord or to something else. Verse 4 says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. The man who trusts in God is blessed. And why? Verse 5 answers this question, Because... Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. The man who trusts in God is blessed because he has trusted in the one person, the one thing, who cares for him more than anyone else cares for him, and has done things no one else can do. And not only has he done things no one else can do, but God has done these wonderful, incredible things so many times. David cannot even count them. The rest of verse 5 says, None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. None can compare to the Lord. The proud do not compare to God. Lies and false gods do not come close to the love and power of the true God. They have done nothing, while God has done innumerable wonders. God has a track record of deliverance unlike any other. Blessed is the one who trusts in the dependable God. Next, we see how this deliverance transformed David's heart, how it affected him on the inside. God was not interested in mere external actions and formalities and rituals as a response, but instead, God opened his ears, allowing his powerful word to enter the heart, mind, and soul of David. Now these verses don't mean, I'm speaking of verses 6 through 8 here, these verses don't mean that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was wrong or useless. Um, It was established by God, so it had to be purposeful. But the sacrifices did no good if they were performed with closed ears and not with a heart alongside that offering. But when God opened his ears, to hear his word, this is how it changes David inwardly. Verses 7 and 8. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. My law, your law is within my heart. The will of God is now the desire of his heart. David does not offer God mere ex- external formalities. He offers his heart and his commitment. The blessed man who trusts in God trusted in the Lord, is blessed not only because by deliverance from suffering, but by the gift of ears to hear the sweet voice of God. David has experienced the powerful deliverance of God and has been given a new song and ears to hear, and he can't keep it to himself. He sings this new song, this hymn of praise to God, verses 9 and 10. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. He is proclaiming the saving acts, the righteousness, the faithfulness, and the love of God to the great assembly, such that many can see and hear who God is. God does not do wondrous works simply for our own comfort and amusement. He does them to reveal himself to mankind that they might turn to him. 
Romans 10.14 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? David responded to God's work in his life by telling of these works and praising the righteousness, faithfulness, and love of the one true God. So far, David has joyfully celebrated how God had previously delivered him out of the slimy pit. But verse 11 marks a dramatic shift in the tone and the focus of this psalm. Verse 11 says, Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. He moves from recounting God's deliverance to now asking for deliverance once again. It's important to recognize that it is in this context that the context that the first half of the psalm is written. David's not recounting God's deliverance and praising him immediately after he is freed from his suffering, but actually in the midst of another trial. In his prayer for help from the Lord, David begins by requesting that God not withhold the blessing of knowing him that he just praised in verses 9 and 10. He understands that without God's mercy and without his love and faithfulness to protect him, he is nothing. Without that gracious hand to lift him out of trouble and set him on firm ground, he is sunk. In verse 12, David acknowledges his sin and his weakness in the midst of trouble. He says, For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Contrasting with the transformed heart that blesses the man who trusts in God, David is now recognizing to God the failing heart that comes from his sin. While the man who turns to the Lord sees and hears the voice of God, the man who dwells in the muddy pit is blinded by sin. Not only this, but David confesses that his sins and troubles are not minimal and insignificant, but rather they are without number and more than the hairs of my head. Again, quoting from verse 12. But as great as his sins and troubles are, he remembers. He remembers verse 5. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you plan for us. None can compare with you, were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they too would be too many to declare. And so, as many as his sins and trouble are, he remembers that there is a God whose power and deliverance is even greater. And so he calls upon him in verse 13. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. But his recollection of God's deliverance does not end there. He remembers that those who look to the proud and false God trap themselves in the sinking, slimy pit. Verses 14 and 15 say, May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion, and all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha! Aha! be appalled at their own shame. He prays that those who laugh at him as he waits in the mud may come to see that they too are stuck in the pit of disgrace and shame. This is the condition of the proud. They stomp and they roll, laughing and seemingly helpless, at the seemingly helpless condition of others, not realizing 
that they are stomping and rolling in the same pit of mud, each movement sinking them deeper and deeper. They mock the one who is standing still, looking up and crying out for help, waiting on God to deliver him. If only they too were to look up, they could see the dire situation they are in. As C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Let us also examine ourselves to make sure we are not the proud mockers. And may we also pray for those who stand by laughing, as David did, that they might be turned back in disgrace and appalled at their own shame, so that, again it says in verse 3, they will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. We pray that all who are stuck in the slimy pit would seek God for deliverance. For verse 16 says, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. David prays that all who seek the Lord would be able to rejoice and be glad. Because they know they have called on the one who can deliver them. The one who can lift them out of the slimy, muddy pit and give them a firm place to stand. Finally, notice again that this psalm is written from that very pit. The great words of praise and confident hope for salvation are not written at the time of victory. Verse 17 says, But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. David is once again patiently waiting for the Lord. Waiting for him to turn and to hear his cry. But he has seen, heard, and sung of God's deliverance before. And so he can now confidently say to God, You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. I now want want to synthesize these observations from the text into a couple main points that the text is teaching about God and man's relationship to him. And then we'll look at how these points apply to us now today. The first teaching point, the first lesson we learn from this passage is that we are dependent. Mankind is not self-sufficient nor self-sustaining. Notice again all the instances in this psalm where God is the one acting on behalf of the man. God turns and hears the cry. God lifts him out of the pit. God sets his feet on a rock. God puts a new song in his mouth. God has done many wonders. God opened his ears. God writes the law on his heart. And God is the one who will deliver him. Like David in the slimy, muddy pit, we are utterly helpless to get out. The only way is to reach up and cry, Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. We cannot climb out of the slimy pit. We must be lifted out by the gracious hand of God. And we're not just dependent on God to get out of the pit. We're dependent on him to not fall back into the pit. Maybe today at this moment, you're doing very well for yourself. You're happy. Your life is going well. You're thriving. Do you not realize who it is that gave you that firm place to stand? Do you not recognize that he is graciously holding you upright, 
If you were to remove his hand in an instant, you would slip right back into the pit. We're dependent on God, not just in salvation, but in perseverance as well. Paul challenges the Galatians saying, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the spirit, are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? We're continually dependent on God for our salvation and for our perseverance. Not only are we dependent if we choose to trust in God, but we are dependent regardless. Notice verse 4, the only two options are to trust in God or to look to the proud and false gods. We must depend on something or someone else. And so our choice is not whether we are dependent or independent. Our choice is rather, are we dependent on someone who's dependable or depending on something unreliable? Is our house, house built on a rock or is it built on the sand? This brings us to our second teaching point, which is that, oh, wrong way. Second teaching point is that God, we are dependent is the first one, and God is dependable is the second point. If this text on the one hand shows how necessarily dependent we are as human beings, it also establishes who the most dependable person is. Verse 5 says, Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. God has done countless wonders for his people. From leading them out of Egypt and through the wilderness, to giving them victory in battle, to preserving a remnant in the exile. He clothed Adam and Eve. He gave sons to barren women. He restored Job's prosperity. He split the Red Sea. He raised up a small shepherd boy to the throne of Israel. But above all these things, the pinnacle of his works, the ultimate showing of his faithfulness, was the sending of his son, Jesus, to be our salvation. Jesus is that hand of God that's reaching down into the muddy, swampy, slimy pit and grabbing hold of us. He grips us so firmly we won't slip out, yet so gently that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus climbed into that slimy pit of suffering. He endured, like in verse 14 through 15, he endured the proud who took his life, who desired his ruin, and who said to him, Aha, aha. And he gave us his strong and sure footing, his standing with God the Father. The rock upon which we who have been eternally saved stand on is the rock of Christ. In him we are no longer sinking deeper into death, but our position is secure, rock solid. Though we may, may still find ourselves in the pit at times in this life, we can have confidence knowing that our feet are eternally fixed upon a solid foundation, Christ our rock. None can compare with you, O God. We are dependent beings, and he is a dependent, dependable God. To finish, I want to uh, leave us with three points of application of these doctrines that we are dependent and God is dependable. Uh, the first uh, point of application is that is to remember how God has delivered you. And the question that uh, this application is kind of framed by is the question, what do we do when we find ourselves in the slimy pit? First thing we do is remember how God has delivered you. One of the big reasons why many of the Old Testament books were written and recorded 
were to remind God's people of his deliverance. The prophets were also constantly reminding the people of Israel to remember how God led them out of Egypt or other ways he delivered them in incredible ways. David takes this cue as well as he finds himself in need of salvation. He recalls a time when God had previously delivered him. We today also have scripture to reveal to us the character and faithfulness of God so that we can have confidence to trust him in our lives right now. We would be wise to continue to remember how God has delivered us. We tend to have spiritual short-term memory. God delivers us out of trouble and we celebrate, but when we find ourselves in another season of suffering, we think there's no way out of this. We would also be wise to regularly tell our testimonies to ourselves and to others. To ourselves as a reminder that God is our help and our deliverer. And to others so that, like verse 3 says, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him as well. The second point of application, second thing that answers, what do we do when we find ourselves in the slimy pit? Is wait patiently for God to deliver you again. At both the beginning and end of this psalm, we find David patiently waiting for the Lord. What trust does it show to God if we cry out to him, but in a short moment we begin kicking and screaming, frantically trying to scrape and crawl our way through the slimy pit? Or we could ask this another way, maybe. How much faith in God did it show when God brought the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, only for them to grow impatient and build a golden calf? Patience is something I have much room to grow in. When something goes wrong, I often want to lunge forward and grab the reins. My instinct is to try swimming through the mud and the slime. I pray that God would give me the patience to wait on him and endure, if I must, the critique and mockery of my desperate position while I cry to him. I do want to clarify one thing in this point. Patience does not entail complete idleness. There are many things we can and should do while we are waiting on the Lord. One of the things we can do is be earnest in prayer. By this, I do not mean only saying a morning or evening prayer or praying at mealtime. Rather, I more so mean what Romans 12, 12 says. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. If you are stuck in the swamp, unable to go anywhere, what a wonderful opportunity to spend more time in prayer to our Lord. If you lost your job and don't know where to go next, spend much time in prayer. If you are stuck in the hospital next to a loved one for hours on end, spend much time in prayer. If you're frustrated that you can't seem to kick this habit of sin, spend much time in prayer. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his followers to wait for the Spirit to come. Under the threat of persecution, these early followers of Christ were left waiting without their Messiah and without the fullness of the Spirit having come yet either. And we find that in this time of waiting on God, Acts 1.14 says, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. While they were waiting on God, they were constantly in prayer. We would be wise to do the same. This text hints at another wise thing to do when we're waiting on the Lord. Wait with others. When Jesus told his followers to wait and then ascended into heaven, 
his followers did not scatter, running off into their private corners to pray. Instead, they all joined together constantly in prayer. There is power in the community of the church, the fellowship of believers. Faith is not a private affair. To cite Romans 12 again, Paul commands the church to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. When someone is rejoicing in the deliverance of God, are we like David in verses 9 and 10? Where he says, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. When someone's celebrating God's deliverance, do we celebrate with them? Do we proclaim the goodness of God? And if you are stuck in the pit, are you bringing that up to others in the church so that they can mourn with you, pray with you, and wait on the Lord with you? I've witnessed this this church mourn with those who mourn. I'm, I'm glad that many in this room understand that we are the body of Christ, made up of many members. If the foot is stuck in the mud, are we stuck with them? Or do we cut ourselves off at the ankle? If a hand is trapped, do we wait with it? Or do we saw off the arm and keep moving on? I want to encourage us as a church to keep mourning with those who mourn, to not abandon those in the pit. May we not be the proud scoffers saying, aha, aha, when one of our own is suffering. Instead, may we join with them and say verse 17, but as for us, we are poor and needy. As you wait on the Lord, let others wait with you. And if you see someone patiently waiting on the Lord, join with them in waiting. That's the second application. Wait on the Lord to deliver you again. And how should we wait? Prayerfully and with others. Final point of application. The last answer to the question, what do we do when we find ourselves in the slimy pit, is this. Rejoice and be glad in him. This comes from verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. I don't say this rejoice and be glad in him um, as to contradict what I just said. Uh, do not rejoice and be glad instead of mourning. Mourning and lamenting are good and biblical reactions to suffering. But at the same time, when we remember that we lean on a dependable God, we ought to be able to say, the Lord is great. This is what caught me most off guard as, as I studied this psalm. First half of the psalm sounds like he's rejoicing and being glad in God. But then you realize the psalmist is singing from the pit and saying things such as, my heart fails within me in verse verse 12, and I am poor and needy in verse 17. And yet between those two phrases, we see lines such as verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. As Christians, we are in in a unique position unlike any other. We suffer just like any other human being. We feel pain, 
loss. We feel worry and desperation. And we have permission to feel and express emotions consistent with those experiences. We are also called and are able to at the same time express comfort, joy, peace, and confidence. And this is because though we are dependent, we are dependent on a dependable God. Though we are stuck in the slimy, muddy pit, we know that our God can and will lift us out. He will set our feet on a rock and he will put a new song in our mouth. We know we are blessed who trust in the Lord. We are confident in the storms because though our house may lose some shingles or have some broken windows, we know that the foundation is firm because it is built on a rock. God has proven himself over and over again to be dependable. And so even when we are still in the midst of troubles, we who seek the Lord can rejoice and be glad in him. Though God delivers us through the troubles of this life, as in verses 1 through 3, these verses 1 through 3 will be true of us one day, ultimately, and for eternity. As we patiently wait for the Lord to call us home, may we live faithfully in this broken and troubled world. As we wait for its restoration, as we endure suffering, evil, and pain, May we rejoice and be glad because we know that he has lifted us out of the slimy pit and set our feet on the rock of Christ. And may we belt out the new song he has put in our mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, so that many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him as well. Rejoice and be glad in him. Because of God's amazing grace, because he turns and hears our cries, because he thinks of us when we are sinking deep in the swampy pit. Even in the worst of times, we can still exclaim with great joy, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Will you pray with me?